war, one of the oldest institutions in human history. Some are fought for defense, others for greed or glory. In modern times, it's become a big business, a pillar of the world's economy. In 2019, 1.9 trillion U.S. dollars were spent on defense globally. The United States spent over 700 billion alone in 2020, not to mention the $2 trillion total price of the Iraq War. The nations of the world spend these copious amounts of money to purchase state-of-the-art weaponry, pay subcontractors, and other expenses that are needed for a modern war machine. It's fine, right? The wars aren't fought here. But what if the war machines was turned against us? Impossible? Couldn't happen here. Well, in the mid-1980s, a classified United States federal government plan was leaked. Rex 84. If you have the time, it's definitely worth looking into. I'm Bella Anima, and on this episode of Timeless Science Fiction, we explore what that plan may have looked like if it had ever gone into effect. Rex 84 Written by D.A. Augustine Narrated by Todd Creel Part 1 Honey, if I have to fill out any more job applications, I'm going to go crazy, Reginald said to his fiancée, Monet. Count your blessings, Reggie. I make enough to support us both, so until you find something else, we'll be simply fine. Reginald sighed and relaxed against the back of his chair. He glared at the computer screen showing his resume and thought of how nice everything was before Rex 84 had gone into effect. He had saved enough over the past few years to survive for at least a year without working, but his frustration came more from their new reality than from a worry about their financial situation. He just wanted a routine that involved him leaving the house. I know, I know, I guess I'm just going stir-crazy. A muffled crash pulled his attention, and he jumped up, running into the living room to investigate. What? What's wrong? Monet said, detecting his elevated breathing. Reginald looked around with his heart racing until he found the source of the noise. His cat, Pixie, was tangled in a half-unrolled ball of yarn. A portion of the yarn had wrapped around the leg of the chair. In an effort to free herself from the string, Pixie had found herself up against the leg and had to resort to mewling for help. He shook his head and took a deep breath to settle his nerves, bending down to help free the poor thing. Nothing, sorry. Pixie just tied herself up. You and that cat were once inseparable. Remember when? A deep voice yelled in the background and Reginald knitted his brow together. He could barely make out what the person was saying, but Monet's response was less than friendly. He finished freeing Pixie and stood. Mo, is everything all right? His voice echoed back and he realized she was now far away from her phone. He could still hear the conversation, and it made his pulse pound inside his ears. Ma'am, please don't make me use force. Just come with me quietly, and we'll get this all sorted out, the deep voice said with authority. I'm not going with you anywhere. Why are you trying to arrest me? Adrenaline exploded into Reginald's veins. Neither of them have ever gotten into trouble with the law. She worked as a guard for crying out loud. She had to undergo background checks for months before they even let her step on sight. 
Ma'am, I can't discuss the details of the case, but it's serious. I know my rights. You have to tell me why I'm being arrested before you arrest me. There was a pause, but Reginald knew her statement was false. Since Rex 84 had been instituted, martial law meant her rights were subject to the discretion of the military, and he assumed it was a military police officer that was attempting to arrest her. Ma'am, the deep voice spoke, I'm not going to ask you again. You, just tell her, Lieutenant. There's no reason why she can't know, said another voice, quieter than the deep voice, but bearing a distinctive southern drawl. After another pause, the deep voice said, Fine. You're under arrest for treason. Give me your phone. Monet continued to protest, and the sounds of a scuffle made Reginald feel helpless. He wanted to do something, but he was at least twenty minutes away. And even if he were there, it was unlikely he would be able to do much but try to calm her down. The sound of the phone dropping and hitting the tile registered, and he hung up. With his heart still beating a mile a minute, he grabbed his keys and jogged out to his car. He checked his watch to see how long before curfew before starting the engine and gunning it towards the temporary FEMA base where Monet had been stationed in recent weeks. He made it to the FEMA base in 15 minutes and jogged up to the front gate. State your name and business, the guard said at the front. Reginald Williams, I'm here to see my fiancée, Monet. She was just arrested. The guard frowned and lifted an eyebrow as he leaned on both elbows against the wooden desk. Rare to have arrests here. She must have done something serious. Reginald swallowed hard and tried to calm his breathing. He knew he needed to remain focused and polite, but every ounce of his body told him to freak out. He folded his arms and had to make a conscious effort to stop tapping his fingers against his body. I don't know, just please, I'm in a bit of a hurry. The guard huffed a gust of air through his nose before picking up a walkie-talkie and telling someone who Reginald was and who he was there to see. A tiny voice came back through the walkie and the guard stood, yelling for the gate to be opened. He pulled a visitor badge off the table and handed it to Reginald. Wear this around your neck at all times in case you get separated from your escort. The guards have orders to shoot or detain at their discretion. Reginald only half listened. His fiance worked here, so he knew the drill. Subtenant Jacobs will escort you to the holding cells. A large man with short, cropped hair walked over and saluted the guard. His name strip read Jacobs, and Reginald fell in line behind him as he walked through the gate into the structure. An old high school had been converted into the temporary FEMA base, and soldiers and personnel walked up and down the hallway, ignoring them. Every once in a while, someone would open or close a locker, providing a repetitive slam or screech every few minutes. They turned down a hall and went through the science lab and into another hallway. At the end of this hallway was a sign that had been spray-painted onto the front of a tall cardboard box. On the right was an arrow that displayed holding pins. On the left, an arrow that displayed interrogation rooms. Hanging a left made Reginald's heart beat a little faster, but he figured his fiancée was just getting interrogated or something. He was wrong. Subtenant Jacobs opened a metal door that squeaked in protest. Jacobs stood aside for Reginald to go through. Things seemed fishy, but he still went without question. The door was shut behind him and he stood in the corner, looking around the room. It was a standard-looking interrogation room. There was a metal table in the center and a camera in the far corner. A glass mirror was on one side, so he assumed it was a two-way mirror. The table had metal chairs on either side, and there were clasps for handcuffs to be affixed to. Take a seat, son. I'll be in in a moment, said the same tiny voice from the walkie-talkie. Reginald complied. The chair made an awful scraping sound against the tile floor when he sat, and he swallowed hard, wondering why he was about to be interrogated. A few minutes later, a man in a green uniform walked in with his hands behind his back. 
He stopped behind the other chair, but remained standing, eyeing Reginald with squinted eyes. Tell me, son, how long have you been in the business of terrorism? The man said, his southern drawl telling Reginald it was the same man he had heard on the phone while Monet was getting arrested. Reginald flashed a nervous smile and lifted an eyebrow before saying, I'm sorry, I think there's been some sort of misunderstanding. I'm here to see my fiance, Monet Jackson. She's a guard here. She got arrested, but I think that it was a misunderstanding as well. The man in the green uniform walked over beside Reginald and bent over until his face was close enough to puff hot air into Reginald's. His breath smelled like cigar tobacco, but he also had a strong aftershave that wafted from his clean-shaven neck and chin. I know exactly why you're here, son. I can see it in your eyes that you're one of them. One of who? Whom, the man in the green uniform said, standing fully erect again and walking back to his side of the table. You think I won't find your base of operations? It's only a matter of time. We have your fiancé. How long do you think it'll be before she cracks? Sir, this is getting a bit ridiculous. I keep telling you that you have the wrong man. And woman? My fiancé hasn't done anything wrong. We're normal old citizens. I have no clue who or whom you keep claiming we're part of. The general slammed both of his palms down on the table and made Reginald jump. Adrenaline joined his veins again as nervousness filled his heart. Something was very wrong. Just as the man with the southern draw moved his lips to speak again, a klaxon alarm started blaring in the background. The man in green looked up and listened for a moment before narrowing his eyes at Reginald. I'm not through with you yet, son. Without another word, the man spun on his heels and exited the room. The klaxon alarm continued to blare and Reginald swallowed. He stood up and immediately went to the door he had come through, checking the handle. He was shocked to see that Subtenant Jacobs had forgotten to lock it, so he opened it up and peeked through. Seeing no one, he exited and made it back out into the hallway. He retraced their steps, and when he made it to the cardboard box pointing toward the holding cells, he walked down until he came to the end of the hallway. The only way to go was left, so he started walking. Soldiers and personnel ran the opposite direction of him, and he heard gunfire in the distance. He started sweating as he questioned what was happening, but the only thing on his mind was finding Monet. As he walked, he realized the hallway was almost entirely glass on the left side, and through the windows he could see a large open field. The school had formed a U-shape around the field, and on the other side of the grass was a second parking lot. Behind that parking lot was a large steel structure that had obviously been added since the FEMA building had taken over the school. As he neared the end of the hallway, he saw a line of people with their hands handcuffed behind their backs. Six guards were pointing assault rifles at them and shouting, but the glass was too thick for him to hear anything. Reginald spotted the door to the left of the prisoners, and he ran the rest of the length of the hallway he was in before turning and running to the end of the next hallway as well. He burst through the door, and the outside air was louder than he expected it to be. Inside, the sound of running shoes and yelling mixed with the distant gunfire was overall muffled. Outside, the gunfire was harsh, and every so often an explosion vibrated the ground and air. Tell us where your base is, the guards were yelling at the prisoners. Monet! Reginald yelled as he saw his fiance a few people down. Yelling pulled the attention of the guards, but they kept their guns trained on the prisoners. Back up, back up, one of the guards yelled, noticing Reginald's visitor pass and waving with his gun to tell Reginald to comply. Reginald, Monet screamed, and Reginald's heart melted. Again, he felt helpless. More explosions and gunfire in the distance made him duck a little, but he looked back to Monet. A growing yell reached Reginald's ears, but he couldn't tell where it was coming from. The rising yell continued, and Reginald looked across the field. 
At first, a single person appeared from around the building on the other side of the field, but then at least fifty more appeared. They opened fire, and one of the guards was struck in the back of the head. He slumped over, and time crawled to a near standstill as adrenaline pumped through Reginald's veins. Ricocheting bullets sparked against metal along the bottoms of windows, divots were carved out of the brick wall behind him, and blood splattered against the grass and uniforms. Without thinking, he started moving towards Monet to try and shield her. She was handcuffed and defenseless. Four of the remaining five guards spun around and started opening fire on the group of people running towards them. Their assault rifles had already been primed to fire, and they unloaded on the incoming group. Reginald kept moving forward toward Monet as the chaos around him continued. The guards still facing the prisoners took aim at the first prisoner and fired a single shot into their neck. The guard turned towards the next prisoner and fired. No! Reginald screamed as he continued moving toward Monet. A bullet whizzed in front of his face. He gasped and instinctively flailed his arms and closed his eyes, tripping over another guard that was dead on the ground. He landed in the soft grass, and everything seemed to fade away into a gray and black plain until nothing but he, the executioner guard, and Monet remained. The guard pointed at Monet's head and pulled the trigger. Reginald's eyes widened. Shock riveted through his body. As Monet fell, everything went cold, and his heart pounded so fast he thought it would explode. When her body hit the ground, he let out a scream so loud and shrill that at first even he wasn't sure that it was coming from him. The guard that had shot his fiancée was struck in the calf before dropping to one knee with a grunt. Another bullet hit him in the spine and shoulder, and he fell forward. Reginald remained frozen in place. The gunfire around him continued to report, but none of the guards were still standing. All he could do was stare at his fiancée's body, as if looking hard enough would bring her back. Then, a rage like he had never experienced before boiled in his veins. He pushed up off the ground and ran over to the fallen soldier. He picked up the dropped assault rifle and pointed it at the soldier's corpse. He pulled the trigger and screamed as tears rushed down his cheeks and chin. He cursed the soldier's existence, spitting with every word until his sobs caught in his throat and he could do nothing but wail. That's the spirit, brother, someone's voice came from behind him. Still enraged, Reginald spun around and continued to pull the trigger. The magazine empty, the assault rifle only clicked, but Reginald kept squeezing it. Before him was a man with long black hair and a black bandana tied around his forehead. Someone had used a stencil to spray paint a red fist onto the bottom of the bandana, and some of the paint had dripped to give the image a bleeding effect. Calm down, I'm on your side, the man said, keeping his own rifle pointed at the ground. Reginald stared at the guy with a scowl on his face. He knew this man didn't shoot his fiancée, but the rage and depression inside still shook his hands and made him short of breath. A boom that shook the ground and made both of them raise their hands for balance pulled their attention to where a giant metal structure at the back of the parking lot had been. The metal walls had been knocked down, apparently intentionally, and within the structure were two giant mechs. With blue-white electricity that popped and crackled, both mechs powered on with a deep hum. The two mechs were similar, but there were a few nuances. They were both painted gray and made up of gray metal. They both had significant girth, and wrapped around their bodies were various weapons and compartments for storing additional munitions. The mech on the right had a large railgun affixed to its shoulder. Its right hand was free and complete with five fingers. The left hand was just a large cannon with a radiant green light where an elbow joint would be on a human. The left mech was a little lighter and had five fingers on both arms. At its side were holstered machine guns with ammo clips that wrapped around into an unseen compartment on its back. 
At the front of its pelvis was a vertically sheathed sword. Reginald and the bandana guy shared a look before the bandana guy pointed his weapon and started shooting with a yell. Reginald was frozen in place. He dropped his gun. What possible hope did his rifle have against what stood before him? Right Mac took a step forward, and the railgun started to hum. Electricity started popping and crackling around the barrel, and an orange glow began to emanate from within it. I've heard things about these, the guy with the bandana said as he tossed down his rifle. They're last resort weapons. The leaders of this base have deemed it a loss, and so they're destroying the whole thing and everyone here. Time for us to go. Who are you? Reginald said, and at that the man smiled. I'm Scott. The others are my band of men. We're part of the new Continental Army. The military already knows who you are and what you've done here. Come with me if you want to live. But I didn't do anything, Reginald said, staying in place as the resistance man started running to the right. See if those things care, Scott said, nodding to the mechs. At the end of his sentence, the railgun fired. The projectile moved too fast for Reginald to see, but the slipstream it created sucked him backward and onto his butt. His ears were ringing, and he realized the force of the projectile moving past him had knocked out his hearing before his brain could register the sound of it. Groaning, he rolled onto his stomach and pushed up off the ground. His ears continued to ring, but he started running. He looked over his shoulder, and a thirty-foot crater had been dug into the ground and cleaned through the middle of the school where the railgun had struck. He would have been able to see through the other side had it not been for all the debris created. By the time he caught up with Scott, his hearing had returned. When he kept stride with the resistance fighter, he said, Please tell me I'm dreaming. Nope, sorry, but this is the new reality. I saw you morning, Monet. Are you Reggie? They kept running, and Reginald felt his chest squeeze. A few deafening booms quaked the ground behind them, and the heat from a large explosion warmed the back of his neck. Large machine gun fire reported and became a chorus for the area. Yes, how did you know Monet? She was part of the resistance. She told me you would take some time before you saw the significance of what we do, but there's no time like the present to learn. Wait, are you telling me there wasn't a mix-up? She was really committing treason? We don't like words like that, Scott said, and other resistance fighters started joining them as they ran, but she was definitely down with the calls. Reginald ran the rest of the way with them in silence. They reached a wooded area and traveled a few feet into the forest before uncovering a convoy of jeeps. The surviving resistance members piled inside, and Reginald stuck with Scott. So what now? What happens from here? Reginald said, staring at the window, at the passing jeeps as they drove onward. Well, the big plan is to go to D.C. and let's just say reset the balance of power. For now, let's just get you cleaned up and oriented. With a sigh, Reginald continued looking out the window. Still in shock and a little numb, he managed to chuckle to himself as he thought back to that morning and how he had complained about being stuck at the house. Thinking of that morning made him think of Monet, and a darkness settled into his heart. He gritted his teeth and wanted nothing more than to get back at the people responsible for her death. Thank you for listening. Tune in next time to hear the riveting continuation of Reggie's story. It's just getting started. I'm Bella Anima, reminding you to stay timeless.